We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're grateful to uh, be able to be back here tonight. We're turning our Bibles to Matthew 27. I decided I would work a little bit on a message here um, in Matthew 27. And I'm just finding other notes in my Bible there that I'm going to set aside because you don't want those ones. But uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 26. Starting in verse 26. And it's not really a Christmas message, although I think it may be helpful for us to juxtapose Christmas with the reason why Jesus came and what he did in doing so. It's not just all a nice story about, you know, babies that don't cry and mangers and, you know, cattle's lowing and uh, angels singing and all of that sort of thing. There is more to it by far than that. We've arrived in our study in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 27, verse 26. We, Having uh, stepped through the Gospel verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph from chapter 1-1, which we began over a year ago, we're now here in chapter 27. And... Um, that, by the way, that was uh, in December, I think, of 2020 when I began talking about Matthew's gospel with the birth narrative because it was around Christmas time. And now we've passed another Christmas and are here at the end of the uh, story in Matthew 27. We continue studying the suffering of Jesus after the trial in front of Pilate and the substitution of Barabbas. Remember, we said that Jesus, although it doesn't really say this in explicit terms, but it obviously shows it in the narrative that Jesus took the place of Barabbas. Barabbas deserved to die. Jesus did not. Pilate was really, I don't know how to say it. I mean, he's a frustrating figure. He, he, he gave up on justice. He just threw it out, out the window. He said, I find no fault in this man. And yet he went ahead and had him punished. And the fellow who was clearly an insurrectionist and a murderer who had, the Bible says in elsewhere, not in Matthew, but in the other Gospels, had committed murder in the insurrection, was let go. I mean, it's hard to imagine Herod doing that for, for no other reason. And think about Herod letting Barabbas go, who probably killed a Roman soldier or a Roman person because this was an insurrection, right? I don't think Barabbas probably killed a bunch of Jewish people. So Pontius Pilate is letting go a man who killed a Roman. What about the family of that Roman soldier or that Roman official who was killed? How do you think they felt that this guy just got off the hook with nothing doing? No, no consequences at all. Total frustration because of the lack of justice. Well, uh, I hate to say it, but things only went downhill from there. Um, verse number 26 although I, I touched on this last time because it was the conclusion of the account. It says, then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
So after releasing Barabbas to the bloodthirsty crowd, and I do call them bloodthirsty because they wanted somebody to be crucified, and they said, let his blood be upon us and on our children. Isn't that a disgusting statement? I mean, we wouldn't even say that today, or we shouldn't say that today about a mass murderer who is being executed in the, uh, in the state penitentiary. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children? No. I mean, we don't feel good about having to kill a criminal. Have you ever paused to think about the death penalty or listened to accounts of men who are on death row and the long time that they're there staring at the wall waiting to be executed? And, and it's, for me, it's a whole experience. I mean, I just... It's very distasteful. And to think about people who have the job to say, yes, you have the death penalty, and then to do the death penalty to them, we would never say things like let their blood be on it, like, like have at it. It's disgusting. It's terrible to have to do that sort of thing. But this crowd was like that, and that's why I call them bloodthirsty. And it's sad to have to say that, but I think it's a fitting statement. Um, we won't find the Roman soldiers to be much better at all. Um, and so this, after Barabbas was released, Pilate had to have given orders for Jesus to be scourged and crucified. Do you think the soldiers just did it on their own? No. So the, the act, the show, the theater of him washing his hands, that's all it was, was just an act. It meant nothing because he was the one giving the orders to have Jesus to be scourged and crucified. All of that hand-washing was absurd. He was ordering the man to be harmed, a man himself who he himself said was innocent. He could find no guilt in him, but he ordered this heinous thing to be done to him, to Jesus anyway. It says he handed him over or he had him scourged. Okay. He didn't do the scourging himself, but he had him scourged. And let me just share with you a note from the MacArthur Study Bible, after which I'm not going to say any more on this distasteful subject. The whip used for scourging consisted of several strands of leather attached to a wooden handle. Each strand had bits of metal or bone attached to the end of it. The victim was bound by... Uh, his wrists to a post high over his head so the flesh of his back would be exposed and taut. An expert at wielding the scourge could literally tear the flesh from the back, lacerating muscles and sometimes even exposing the kidneys or other internal organs. Scourging alone was fatal in some cases. I'm going to say no more about that. After the scourging, Pilate ordered Jesus to be crucified just like the crowd desired. Now, to be crucified means to be affixed to a wooden cross with the eventual result of dying, okay? So when we think of crucifixion, we kind of just think of the death, you know, we kind of get to the, de- the dead part, but to be crucified means to be attached to a cross. I mean, it's the word for cross is stauras, and the verb is staurao, to be crossified, is what it is, to be crossified, cruce, cruce, it's a cross from the Latin. And um, 
so he was affixed. Now, some are adamant that the cross, as we know it, was actually a stake. The word stauros is used to refer to different things, such as fence stakes, a T-shaped cross, or one in which the vertical extends above the horizontal like we have here, that little part above the the cross beam part. Um, But the Romans also crucified people on poles, stakes, upside-down crosses, probably like Peter, X-shaped crosses, walls, roofs, etc. Any any fixture that they could affix a body to, they would use in their brutal method of war and suppressing the criminal element. Now, we believe that there is evidence for the traditional cross shape that we have up here on the wall because Jesus said to Peter, when you're old... You're, you will stretch out your hands and you will be led where you don't want to go. That's John 21, 18, when Jesus was telling Peter by what death he would die. And then also in John chapter 20 and verse 25, Thomas is uh, doubting Thomas there, as you recall, and he says, unless I see the prince of the nails in the hands and touch the the nail marks from the two nails. He uses the plural. He doesn't refer to the feet. He refers to the hands. And so if there's plural nails in plural hands, then it wasn't a cross like a stake with, with somebody affixed with one nail through both hands, but with two nails, two hands separate, separated. Um, So this is why we believe there was a cross. A stake would only require a singular nail through the hands. But the verb form to crucify does cover all of these cases, whether it's a cross or a T or some variation. Who's going to quibble with the Romans on the exact shape of the wood that is used when the result is as torturous and deadly as any other method that they used? The meaning of the cross doesn't change if it's not a perfect T shape with a little serif at the top of the T, okay? All right. So that's 26, verse 26. Verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. This is where uh, the Roman governor lived uh, and was probably a, a kind of a place where the soldiers' uh, barracks and things around were as well. He gathered the whole uh, garrison, sorry, the, the soldiers gathered the whole garrison around him, that is Jesus, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So I've kind of broken my notes down in three segments here for this section of Scripture. One is that he was scourged. The second, Jesus was mocked. And that's our section here. Approximately 600 soldiers made up a garrison. I speculate that some of them were not on duty at this time because probably there was shifts, some were at night, some in the day. Um, so 
it still seems, though, that there could have been hundreds of soldiers from this garrison who were there gathered around to see this spectacle. And the soldiers may have been more biased toward the younger age, as young men in, in a pack mentality sometimes are. These ones were cruel and vicious. Cruel and vicious. It was a... It was a uncivilized version of a fraternity. You understand what I mean? Young men get together these days and they do ridiculously stupid things, embarrassing things, sinful things. Only here there was no restraint. There was no common grace. In effect, there was just cruelty and viciousness. They put on Jesus a scarlet robe, it says scarlet here. It's a, um, in Mark and John, it's called purple. It uses a, slight, uses a slightly different Greek word for the color. Um, and I think you can probably give me some, um, how can I say, latitude in the color description. I have this ongoing debate with my brothers uh, from years back when we were children about certain colors, whether they're red or orange. And I've brought that into our home a little bit as well for fun. But the uh, there there's a there's kind of a kind of a reddish orange that's kind of some people see it more red and some people see it more orange. And I'm like, man, look at compare this to the Crayola orange crayon. It's nothing like that. It can't be orange. Well, here you have scarlet, or is it purple, or is it bluish? You know, there's a you know if I showed you like uh, I don't know some color, like the color of the hymnal or the color of the rugs out in the hall, somebody might say, well, it's kind of purplish. Some would say, well, it's maroon. Some would say it's scarlet, and you get the idea. Um, Now, the soldiers seem to have created a king costume using whatever makeshift stuff they had around. So they might not have had the perfect robe to make him look like a king, but they were kind of pretending that that's what it was whatever kind of robe it was that they put on him. And they also added a crown, but they couldn't find a a proper crown, so they made one of a thorny vine and stuffed it on his head. Of course, which when somebody probably found that, the guys were like, yeah, use that, use that, because it would add to the pain and suffering besides the mockery of the whole situation to put a crown like that on his head. They found a plant, a reed that would suffice in their pretend game of worship the king. The false worship was intended to highlight the fact that this so-called king was under their power. He was the king, but he was subject to them. And so he was mocking, they were, sorry, they were mocking him as impotent. So they thought, so they thought, and thus This was symbolic of the Romans' power over the Jewish nation. In other words, they weren't necessarily mocking him just because he was how we know him to be. It wasn't like they were sitting there saying, well, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah, and we hate your guts. It was like sort of that, but it was like you represent to us the Jewish people and we hate them. You know, he he became, embodied in him, became the Jewish nation and their power over them. 
Yes, he was their king, and as a king, he represented the whole group. There was a solidarity between him and the whole group. No, No respect was offered to him because they didn't offer respect to the Jewish people over whom they had conquered and were ruling and had occupied their territory. But in addition, no respect was offered to the man who was about to die. Their punishment continued to be cruel and unusual. You know, the mark of a society is how, it's, how it treats those who are about to die. Uh, elderly folks, you know, sometimes people just want to kind of, you know, get rid of them. Don't want to deal with them, just let them die, bury them, get them out of my sight. Or like the criminal example. How does the criminal justice system treat a criminal before he passes, before they execute him? They give him some last words. Do they give him a last meal? They give him some kind of respect because whether they believe or know it or not or whatever, that one too is created in the image of God. You are about to do a holy thing to a person when you are killing that person, even for the purpose of capital punishment, because you are snuffing out a light created by God. You've got to take that seriously. Not have this idea of laughing at the calamity of a person because he was a wicked evildoer. Yeah, he was a wicked evildoer. And yes, by justice, he does deserve to die. But the whole thing is distasteful, like I said. It's a nasty business, this world in which we live. But they didn't respect him at all. Now, at this point, the physical condition of Jesus must have been purely unbearable. He was in severe pain from the lashes, blood loss, sleepless night, stress. Probably could add a few other things there. Yet he still did not sin. The mocking then became physical when they struck him on the head and spit upon him. This demonstrated their utter contempt for the man in part for who he was, but also in part for whom he represented the Jewish people. Ultimately, it is a case here that they laid their hands on the anointed of God. Touch not God's anointed. And yet they did. They did. Probably most of them did not ultimately repent thus guaranteeing that they would be heavily punished by God the Father when they face him in judgment. Can you imagine the punishment that must face those men who laid their hands on the most holy Messiah? At the end of all of this, the soldiers put Jesus' clothes back onto him, and I'm sure none too gingerly took him away to crucify him. No last meal, no last words, nothing of respect for the image of God in this man. Have you ever stopped to think about that, by the way? Men are created in the image of God. Jesus became a man. Jesus was God in the image of God. That's a remarkable reality. Then he was crucified verses 32 through 44, and we're not going to get through nearly all of this, but I'll just start into it with you. 
It says in verse 32, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, or Cyrene, perhaps you read it, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, or Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I'll stop reading there because I couldn't get any farther in the study for today um, with us. But they have to find a substitute cross carrier. His name was Simon. He was from Cyrene. He, he turns up later in the Bible because you have a fellow named Rufus and what was Rufus's brother's name? Uh, I didn't think of it ahead of time. I, I lost track of it. But anyway, it was their father, we believe, who was the one who carried the cross. He was from a city in North Africa, Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya. Uh, traveled all the way there. Remember what time of the year this was when Jesus died? Passover. Later on, we would see that at Pentecost, 50 days later, there were people from all over the Roman world gathering of all kinds of languages, and they were amazed when the apostles started speaking in their language. Well, I'm sure there must have been people from all over the you know, world that wanted to come and worship during the Passover time in uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, today, the name of this place from whence he came, uh, Cyrene, today it's called Shahat in Libya. It was known at that time for its grain, for its wool, for its horse breeding, and for a rare but valuable herb called silphium. I'd never heard of that herb before, silphium, S-I-L-P-H-I-U-M. Kind of, it ends in I-U-M like opium, but this is silphium, okay? Uh, it wasn't a drug per se like opium is or opiates, but it was uh, prized for its medicinal quality, and at one time it was said to be as, as valuable as silver in its weight. Uh, it was used as medicine for sore throats, for hernias, I don't know how it helped a hernia, but that's what they said anyway. Uh, it was used for contraception and aphrodisiac qualities. They claimed that it had as, as, had as well. Other, there were other things, I'm sure, but I didn't go any farther than those four qualities of it. Um, but, you know, much like today, people have herbs that they think, well, this solves this and this solves this and that's good for that and all that. You know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but... This one was reputed to be like that. Now, the Roman soldiers compelled the Simon fellow to carry the, G the cross of Jesus. Probably the cross was the horizontal bar of the cross, the, the, you know, the horizontal cross beam piece, which may have been constructed with some kind of a hole in the middle so that it could be lifted up and set onto the vertical piece if the vertical was affixed into the ground somehow. Or maybe it was the whole cross and they had a hole in the ground in the rock in which the uh, vertical could be slid down in. We don't, I don't know exactly. Um, somebody else who could probably tell us more about that if they've done ex excavation or archaeological work in these sites or seen similar sites. But in any case, um, 
that's what he was he was carrying either the cross beam or the whole thing and even the cross beam i don't know if you know how heavy a piece of wood that big would be mike scarfo here and he knows he i mean uh that that's not solid but the gentleman who hauled that up on three ladders and hung it up on the wall will tell you that's heavy enough but this could have been a couple hundred pounds or more if it was a solid wood beam, perhaps shaped, you know, not like round like a log, but maybe flattened off, you know, kind of like we see here. Extraordinarily heavy for any, any human being, much less somebody who's been in the condition that Jesus was put into, almost impossible for him to be able to do this. And it probably was a normal thing for the soldiers to say, hey, some you know, burly-looking fellow in the crowd, hey, you. And, of course, they're not going to refuse because they'll be the next guy on that, on that cross. So, oh, my, what a, t- what a terrible thing that this man had to do. But he, he did it. And uh, in a way, you think, boy, his, his boys, the stories that he must have told his boys about that and the way that he actually helped Jesus in a way. Very remarkable. The cruelty of this instrument of death is almost unimaginable. I don't really have an appetite tonight to uh, go through all the details with you, but I will say it was a slow, torturous form of death perfected by the Romans after they received it from the Persians and the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians and others over the years. Death came to the victim by a combination of means including exhaustion, pain, blood loss, asphyxiation, or even being eaten alive by birds of prey as they hung there for two to three days before dying or having their legs broken, which led to a quick asphyxiation. I tend to think that extended pondering on the physical brutality of the cross is not profitable. I don't know what you think about that, but uh, movies like The Passion of the Christ, which I have not seen for the record, and I will not see, uh, you know, maybe portions of it or something, I, but I, ha- I will not see it, um, because focusing on the physical brutalities of the cross is not profitable because of the violence of it and the state of mind that it induces in the thinker uh, as you're thinking about it. We also have to remember that a great deal of the suffering of the Lord was beyond physical suffering. It was spiritual suffering as he suffered the fate of being separated somehow from God and being punished, judicially uh, punished for the sins of the world, never having experienced that kind of separation from God. Your sins have separated you from your God, your, your iniquities. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Jesus experienced that for the very first and only time. And so we have to be careful not to overdo speaking about the horrendous sufferings that the Lord underwent. There's more to it than that. And even that, as I'm trying to help you to realize, is not the best kind of way to spend all of your time. Just be thankful that God sent his son to die for you. And he did go through all of that death in order to be punished in your place. And the place where that happened was Golgotha, or Golgotha, depending on how you place the accent. It may have been named for its shape, 
Some have suggested the shape of the hill upon which the crosses were placed had some maybe cavities or caves that looked like two eyes and a mouth, maybe looked like a skull. Others have suggested, and we don't know that for sure, but others have suggested that this, this name comes from the fact that it was the hill of skulls because they didn't bury all the people that were killed there on the crosses. It became a place where there were skeletons, there were crosses, there, I mean not crosses, there were skulls, there were, you know, there was deadness. It was just an atmosphere of death everywhere. Rome obviously used that as an effective means of terrorism to keep the people in line. So they brought him there to this place, uh, and they gave him sour wine mingled with gall. Now, gall is, means something that's bitter, um, and it could have been um, that this just refers to the same thing as myrrh, which another gospel writer mentions. Myrrh was mentioned uh, mixed in with this sour wine, and this was a narcotic pain reliever. And when Jesus tasted, what it wasn't just water, it was that they were giving him a narcotic pain reliever to make it somewhat easier to endure the sufferings of the cross. That's kind of nice of them, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but, you know, why don't they just not do crucifixion in the first place? But the Lord refused to become stupefied in accomplishing his work. This particular choice that he made in the context in which he made it does not tell us either for or against the use of painkillers today, okay? It has nothing to do with it. If you use painkillers, it doesn't mean you're unspiritual, okay? Now, if you use them too much and you're addicted to them, then yeah, you have a problem. You know, let's work on that problem. But it's not wrong to reduce human suffering. It's not wrong to give somebody who's dying relief from their pain. That's a good not a bad, okay? So this passage doesn't say anything about that. But in this case, it was inappropriate because why? The Lord Jesus still had ministry to do while he was hanging on the cross. You know what he did? Seven sayings on the cross. He talked to a man on one side of him who got saved and went to paradise with him that day because of his ministry on the cross. So doesn't matter where you're at. You could be in the hospital. You could be in your sick bed, your deathbed, and you can still minister to people if you're not stupefied from painkillers. But it is fine to reduce human suffering that way. Uh, in fact, Proverbs says, give wine to one who's perishing. You know, That's a good use of wine. That's about the only good use of wine that I can think of, you know. Um, I know the other path, the other part of it talks about him who is sad and, and, uh, and, and kind of depressed. I think there's better solutions uh, to that than that kind of coarse, coarse solution. You give them, you don't give people the hope of the bottle, right? Yes, you got a comment? Question. Yeah. Took the easy way out, right. Yeah, I've also uh, tended to believe that, what Drew is mentioning, that the Lord did not want to take pain-killing uh, uh, substance in order to mute the pain of what he was doing and take the easy way out. Uh, there really was no easy way out for him. 
and um, he was going to take the full brunt of the wrath uh, of the living God. Um, so the soldiers got to their work. It says that they crucified him. Very simple statement, very short, four words in English. It means they affixed him to the cross. They affixed their victims on the crosses. I say crosses because there were three there at that particular time, a thief on the right and left and Jesus in the middle. And then they immediately turned, these soldiers immediately turned to their own prophet. Forget about them on the cross and their suffering. We want their stuff. We want their last earthly goods. They're not taking it with them anyway. They don't need it. They're up there being uh, shamefully entreated. So they want to take their garments. And they, it says they divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled what was spoken. And I, I didn't get to that second part of the verse. I won't tonight. But I just end with this comment. Who would be so, who, who would be so pathetic as to want the blood-stained garments of a man who was just nearly whipped to death? Who would be so disgusting as to want that? Have some respect, people. The soldiers really wanted them anyway, and so they cast lots for them. I, I don't understand, but uh, we've, we've been rescued from the sinful mindset that these men were steeped in for their whole lives. And I thank God that we've been rescued from that indecent, awful way of thinking so that this looks so foreign to us. Thank the Lord that he went through all of this to take the wrath of God by, um, in some measure, taking the wrath of man against himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am grateful to you that we have this account of the death of Christ and we know not just all about this physical suffering, but we know what the scriptures teach us about why he did this, and that is that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That it was for our iniquities that he was bruised. For our uh, stripes he was chastised. Lord, he was punished so that we could have peace. And we thank you for that. May this message here tonight bring some sober-mindedness to us about the meaning of Christmas and the meaning of life and why we're here, that we're not here just to mess around, just to play around, just to entertain ourselves to death. There's more to life than that. And uh, I pray that you'd help us to be impacted deeply by this. Lord, in any way in which we have sin in our hearts, uh, remove it from us, I pray. Keep us close to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.